Good day. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Headlines, uh, brought to you by The Post and Courier. I'm Glenn Smith. I'm the editor of the newspaper's watchdog and public service team. And with me today are investigative reporters Avery Wilkes and Thad Moore and quick response reporter Jocelyn Gressick. We're here today to talk about Alex Murdoch's upcoming murder trial. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that the event is being recorded today and we will be sending out a video after the event with contact info in case anyone has more questions. I also want to encourage everyone to submit questions through the Q&A function at the bottom of the Zoom screen. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, before we get started as well, I want to plug the, the, the Murdoch landing page we have. If you want to get caught up on the case, uh, look at past articles and breaking news, you can go to postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. Also, a good resource heading into the trial is to check out our weekly podcast, Understand Murdoch, which is available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Okay. It's been 19 months since prominent Hampton attorney Alex Murdoch called police telling them that his wife and son had been shot to death at the family's sprawling Colleton County hunting estate. The time since, Murdoch's life has unraveled in a very public and spectacular way. He's been indicted on a failed suicide plot, treated for a raging drug habit, and tied to a string of financial crimes that siphoned nearly $9 million from his former law firm and clients. And that's not to mention the web of civil lawsuits and associated criminal investigations that has sprung up around the once prominent attorney. The final blow came this past summer when he was formally charged with killing his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul, allegations that he adamantly denies. Those allegations are gonna play out in a high stakes trial that begins this coming Monday, January 23rd, in the small city of Walterboro, which is the county seat of Colleton County. Media across, from across the nation are expected to arrive in attendance and for what some are calling the trial of the century in South Carolina. Today, we're sitting down with the team who will be covering this trial gavel to gavel over what is expected to be perhaps three weeks or more of testimony. We will be discussing where things stand with the case, including the evidence against Murdoch, his alleged motive, and the legal strategies at play. Okay, Avery, we're going to start with you today. We have veteran attorneys on both sides here, and they've been slugging it out for months over what the jury will hear and consider. Tell us a little bit about the state's theory of the case and what they have put forth as the motive for the killings. Yeah, so essentially the state believes and has alleged that Alec Murdoch killed his wife and son in June 2021 in a desperate and, and frantic attempt to distract and delay from a pair of inquiries that were about to expose his myriad financial crimes and lead to his personal ruin. Uh, obviously, since the, the slayings in June 2021, there have been a, a rolling series of indictments that together allege that Murdoch stole nearly $9 million from his legal clients and their settlements, uh, his law partners, as well as others who trusted him, such as the family of, of his late housekeeper. Um, and all of that potentially was going to be exposed in the, the, you know, the weeks after the slayings ultimately were committed. And so, uh, you know, there were uh, inquiries into Murdoch's finances by his law firm, uh, as well as uh, in, a, in a civil case regarding the 2019 boat crash. Uh, and, and so essentially, uh, state investigators and prosecutors alleged that 
Murdoch killed his wife and son in order to buy himself time uh, to try to cover up as well, you know, portray himself as uh, a victim of this unspeakable tragedy and to get people to stop asking questions that he potentially recognized were going to lead to his personal unraveling. Of course, uh, his Murdoch's defense attorneys have claimed that that is uh, illogical and implausible theory. Uh, they're going to be taking a lot of shots at that during the upcoming trial. Um, and essentially, they say it makes no sense to commit a murder in order to prevent your financial crimes from coming out. As far as what the state has against Murdoch, there has been a lot of discussion about that in pretrial motions. The state has claimed they have a mountain of evidence that all points back to, to Murdoch and only Murdoch in these slayings. We've heard about GPS evidence, about uh, a video found on Paul Murdoch's phone, about blood spatter evidence, uh, all of which the state seems to believe places Murdoch at the scene uh, either shortly before or during you know, the commission of these crimes. And, and of course, we've seen Murdoch's defense attorneys try to to take shots at, the, at that evidence in, in pretrial filings and try to exclude pieces of evidence that that could be damning or, or could you know lead a jury to believe that their their client actually committed these slayings. Um, and, and a lot of a lot of those fights about uh, what evidence is introduced and what evidence is excluded are still ongoing and probably won't be settled until after jury selection and the actual beginning of this trial. Yeah, there's some pretty big pieces of evidence there too, like the blood spatter uh, on the on the shirt. That, again, heading into trial, that's a key piece of physical evidence in a largely circumstantial case. Correct? Exactly. The blood spatter is one of the the most hotly debated issues going on right now. I mean, the uh, Murdoch's defense team just yesterday submitted a 63 page motion to try to exclude that uh, th that evidence and that analysis from being mentioned at trial. One of, uh, I mean, basically their their theory is that, uh, and, and what they've, they've put in court filings is that state investigators misled the analyst who purportedly found blood spatter on Alec Murdoch's shirt. Uh, and, and of course, blood spatter is important because um, it would, if, if, a, if a person uh, has, uh, droplets of, of blood, like stains from those droplets on their shirt, um, you know, that means that they were either uh, holding the gun or, or very close to the gun as it went off and, and, and killed the people that caused um, that blood to be discharged into the air. So it, it was portrayed as this major piece of damning evidence against Murdoch. And, you know, essentially, Murdoch's defense attorneys say that it's, it's this big fraud, um, that Murdoch's shirt actually tested negative for human blood, uh, but the state investigators didn't tell the forensic analyst that. And the forensic analyst analyzed the shirt and initially did not find blood spatter. But then after SLED, you know, badgered him for a couple of months, um, you know, he revised his opinion and found more than 100 stains of blood spatter. So they're they're trying to get all of that thrown out. And that will, again, be one of those things that, that comes up you know, in the the pretrial motions and Judge Newman, whatever decision he reaches on that is going to have a major impact at trial. The other major outstanding thing that's that's left to be resolved is the financial crimes and whether evidence of Murdoch's financial crimes, you know, can be admitted uh, and used against him in this trial. Murdoch's attorneys are trying to exclude as much of that as possible. They're saying that, you know, since the state's theory doesn't make sense, the state should not be allowed to just smear their client as a bad guy who deserves to go to jail uh, in the commission of an unrelated crime. So 
Uh, those are two really big outstanding issues that will need to be resolved before this trial can get going in earnest. Yeah, un unrelated crimes for which he has not been convicted yet. So that's correct. Another it, thing, right? it's, it's, yeah. it's fairly well accepted that Murdoch did steal this money from from these people. And, you know, he's admitted as much in, in some of the cases, but some of the cases. but he has not been convicted. Correct. Yeah. So th this will be really interesting to see how that goes down to that. Uh, turning to you, you and Jocelyn recently covered the trial of Russell Lafitte, the former CEO of Palmetto State Bank in Hampton, uh, where Murdoch is from. He was convicted of helping Murdoch steal from their clients. You then sifted through thousands of pages of Murdoch's banking records and other evidence to produce uh, an extremely revealing portrait of his finances. If, if people haven't read that, I would highly urge you go to it. It's a really interesting read. Um, you sat there for, for weeks waiting for records and like just on the edge of your seat trying to get at those bank ledgers, which I, I've never seen so many, somebody so excited to go through bank ledgers. But what did you learn from all of this research and why are his financial dealings expected to play such a pivotal role in this case? Well, that makes it sound a lot cooler than it was, um, but I appreciate uh, hyping me up there. Yeah, so um, what, one of the, the things with the Lafitte trial is that a couple of Alex's basically recreations of his bank account ledger uh, were admitted in that case. And, and parts of them were shown at trial but we realized, um, and it took a better part of probably a month and a half to actually get access to them, that there was like more than a decade of these uh, these records in the case. And what that showed is that, uh, you know, obviously Alex was making a lot of money. Um, one year, uh, he made more than $5 million according to the indictments and sort of an unrelated uh, tax evasion charge. The, the lowest he made, I think in the last decade was somewhere in the neighborhood of $275,000, which is not $5 million, but I mean, Hampton's like median household income is I think $38,000. So yeah, I mean, seven times less, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, what, what the, the records show, and, and this is an incomplete picture because he had um, bank accounts outside of Palmetto State Bank, and that's all that we see in these exhibits. Um, but they they show this sort of yo-yo uh, effect or roller coaster where um, he, so, the way Paul, um, PMPUD paid its attorneys, most of their pay came at the very end of the year, usually on like New Year's Eve. Um, and that's where they got all of their, um, like their, their cut of the settlements or uh, jury verdicts that they won through the year. So you'll just see like a giant transaction drop in, maybe a million dollars, couple million dollars. Um, and what's interesting is then following the transactions that follow that um, and how quickly it winnows away. So there, there's one instance where he gets this this bonus check, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's basically his income. And it's he's in an overdraft after a week. By January 7th, um, he's in an overdraft. And a big reason for that was that he had a lot of lo uh, loans um, largely to deal with. I mean, he had his mortgage, he had lines of credit, but he also had these real estate ventures that he was involved in. Um, some of which are somewhat murky. Uh, I haven't seen a lot about what was actually going on, but basically business loans for real estate. Um, and he's making annual payments on them. And so that eats away at the, the money very quickly. Um, and then as you go through the year, um, it's sort of, there's a pattern of overdrafts followed by maybe a transfer from a line of credit to, to cover that. 
or um, in several instances, he uh, borrowed money from a former client, Hannah Plyler, who was, um, she was at that time a teenager. Uh, her, she'd been in a car wreck that killed her brother and her mother, um, and, and she was hurt as well. Um, and anyway, so you see this, this yo-yo effect. And um, in the financial crimes, like that, those loans are sort of the impetus, the theory is that that was the impetus for a lot of these financial crimes is paying back that debt. And then in terms of the, the murder case, the state's theory is that, as Avery mentioned, that, that there were a couple of inquiries that were going to force Alex to turn over his books to, um, to other attorneys and that he was, his law firm was sniffing around these, these missing legal fees. Um, and actually, he was confronted the day of the murders by the CFO at the law firm who said, hey, we need evidence, like we need proof that these, these legal fees are not missing. That they're actually in the there's he had money supposedly in another law firm's trust account and they wanted evidence of that after going back and forth for two months um and and that day is the day of the murders where, where i think there's a big gap in our understanding is what happens in the hours between the shootings and that confrontation um hopefully we'll learn about that at the at the upcoming trial um, but that was a really big reveal from the Lafitte case. And I think it sort of gets to the idea that there's very possibly a link between uh, the financial crimes and, and this case. Yeah, so, I mean, your story really laid out this case that he had this, this ravenous need for money. He just needs massive cash infusions. He's getting these checks to cover the overdrafts, almost immediately needs loans that are coming out of different clients' accounts until they don't, right? Until he finds other ways to... Uh, allegedly uh, stick his hands in, in, in the till and, and plunder client accounts. Yeah. Uh, on that June 7th date, June 7th um, of 2021, uh, so, so he's confronted by the office manager, right, who says, Where, where's this payout that we're supposed to receive? And he's on the spot there. What, what does he tell her and how does he sort of slip slip the noose there? Yeah, so, so the confrontation's kind of cut short. Um, and, and when Jeannie Seconder, the CFO of the law firm, testified, um, they didn't get into a ton of detail about this conversation um, because they weren't there specifically to talk about the murder allegations, right? Um, so that we might get more detail of that in the coming weeks. Um, but basically what happened is the, the confrontation is cut short because uh, during this meeting, um, Alex gets a phone call uh, and Jeannie's recollection that his, uh, his father is about to die. I think he'd been sick for some time, but uh, it was now terminal. And she decided to drop the issue for that moment because it seemed like he needed to go deal with that. Um, and so, and then obviously after the murders, she again dropped it um, because it was this sort of horrific thing that had happened. Um, and it's not until September that we see sort of a, a more complete reckoning, I guess, happened at the law firm. And what happens there is um, in the intervening uh, weeks, uh, Alex manages to come up with money to repay the, so basically what had happened is he, he'd had a lawyer he'd worked with, an old friend of his, um, sent him his, his cut of the fees directly, uh, where it should have gone to the law firm to be distributed later so that it would go toward their overhead and things like that. Um, and basically he comes up in those intervening weeks with a, a good chunk of money, not all of the money, to sort of put it back in, his, in the other lawyer's account to send to his law firm the way it was supposed to be done in the beginning. Part of that was like a loan from Palmetto State Bank. 
Um, and uh, in any case, so it sort of covers this tracks allegedly uh, well enough. And then a paralegal walks into Alex's office and sees on his desk uh, a check that mentions uh, the legal fees. It's made out to him. And this is like the original check. Um, and she takes that to the partners of the firm who confront him, I believe, the next day. And then the timeline here is a little tricky, but I believe the day after that is the alleged, uh, like the fake suicide plot. Yeah, so he basically calls in, says he's been attacked on the roadside in Hampton while changing a tire. Right. Next thing you know, he's being shipped off to rehab in Georgia and admitting unspecified mistakes. And then really the case comes apart from there, right? And yeah. um, that's sort of where Jocelyn enters the, the picture. Uh, she she had, was not at the paper when the murders occurred, but was thrust into the case soon after arriving, having to cover his first bond hearing, where he's, he basically comes back from rehab to be accused in this botched suicide plot, which was tied into this alleged insurance fraud scheme to collect on insurance to to that would go to his eldest son, Buster, is what the state has said. Uh, so that was sort of a little taste, I guess, of, of the interest that's in this case. You're down in Hampton. Can you set the scene for us a little bit about what you saw that day and what kind of interest you, you that, that was there in this small town? Yeah, that was a crazy day. I remember tons of reporters and photographers um, kind of descended on the town and surrounded this tiny building in Hampton and neighbors you know, walked from their homes and, and stood to kind of observe all the frenzy and TV crews brought in these massive satellites and put them in the parking lot of the, in front of, you know, where the, the bond hearing was. And um, we all, you know, swarmed Murdoch's defense team anytime we caught a glimpse of them walking in or out of the building. And it's crazy to think how, you know, this same scene might play out in Walterboro since interest in the case, I think, has only grown since then. Um, you know, we have TV documentary specials, podcasts, book deals. Um, so I think it's just going to be even crazier next week. And uh, we know Walterboro is busy preparing for this massive influx of people that they're planning to get. The town, I think, has a population typically of just over 5,000. And so, you know, we heard that town officials have arranged for food trucks to be parked outside of the courthouse for us to eat, which is very nice of them. And a local law firm is even renting out office space to media who might need a place to work uh, during the trial. So yeah, it'll just be interesting to see how the town continues to cope with all this sudden attention, both during and after the trial's over. Yeah, and uh, one of our colleagues, Kelly Jean Kelly, was was down in Walterboro about a week or so ago and was uh, talking to people there. And in Hampton, there was this sense of fear, I think, that the, the Murdochs were so powerful, they controlled the local prosecutor's office for 80 plus years. They had this powerful law firm that had made millions suing these deep pocketed clients down that way. And they were afraid to speak out about it. Walterboro, it's a little bit different scene there. And I think some folks are looking at it as, as an attempt, uh, an opportunity to show off the town 
to draw in some visitors and economic development. And others, I think, are kind of viewing this as a, a big uh, unwanted media circus that, that's going to camp out there for, you know, could be a month or more. Who knows at this point? Um, so you're going to be wading into that. All three of you are traveling down there um, amidst this giant media scrum. Like, how how are, are you planning to cover this? I mean, how how what's our plan? Yeah. So Judge Newman issued an order recently, which uh, reserves a number of seats in the courtroom for local media, and which that was great news for us because we're anticipating, you know a battle to get one of these seats. It's going to be a lot of people packed into that courtroom. So um, the Post and Courier has a spot in the courtroom for a reporter and a photographer, which is awesome. And then I know we're planning to have um, the other two of us in an overflow room um, that's been designated specifically for media. And that will actually be uh, set up in the town's wildlife center, which is across the street from the courthouse. Um, and the people who are in there are going to be watching the trial live from a closed circuit feed. And then in terms of how we are planning to cover the trial, so I'll be responsible for kind of creating a live feed and pushing out live updates throughout each day of the trial so we can track witnesses and testimony. Um, and it'll be a lot like, I think, what we did uh, in the Lafitte trial. And I hope that helped, you know, break down some of the more complex issues that uh, that case dealt with, which, as Thad mentioned, you know, could easily come up during this trial, too. Um, and then uh, we'll also be working um, with Thad and Avery to identify, you know, some of the bigger themes that emerge throughout the weeks of trial. And of course, also writing a daily recap of, um, you know, that day's events in the courtroom. Yeah, we're hoping to bring this all to you through, you know, different medium. I know uh, we're planning on live tweeting it, posting Jocelyn was amazing during the Lafitte trial and, and knocking out really good uh, quality live updates, breaking down complex issues into understandable things. And, and we'll have some good weekenders. Hope to have a little video updates uh, in the morning and perhaps uh, update our podcast if all goes well uh, on a daily basis. So there's going to be a number of ways you, you'll be able to access news about the trial. It's, gonna, it's probably going to be no hiding from the trial if you're in South Carolina over the next month. Um, so I thought now we might switch to some reader questions that were submitted. And if anybody's got some questions that they, they haven't asked yet, again, down at the bottom of the screen, the Q&A function, go right ahead and throw some in there and we'll, we'll get to uh, what we can. Uh, one question we received is, uh, what role is Curtis Edward Smith expected to play in the trial? Uh, for those of you who don't remember, uh, Mr. Smith, uh, no relation, was uh, a, a former law client of Murdoch's. He's a distant cousin. He is a uh, disabled logger trucker fellow from Walterboro who was implicated in the botched suicide plot of Labor Day weekend 2021. Um, and he's since been netted in allegations of money laundering and drug running and, and things of that nature. He's been sitting in the Lexington County Jail for some time. Uh, he's been subpoenaed as a witness uh, as well, uh, but 
some folks don't the state particularly is not too eager to see him spend a lot on the time uh, time on the stand avery could you talk to that a little bit yeah so earlier in uh this case a few months ago um he was identified as a potential witness by uh murdoch's lawyers they, they said in a motion that the state planned on making curtis smith their their star witness um, that was in the same motion that Murdoch's lawyers uh, disclosed that Curtis Smith had failed a polygraph test um, with um, with state investigators back in May, uh, and specifically that uh, deception was detected when Smith was asked whether he shot Maggie or Paul, or whether he was present when Maggie and Paul were killed. Uh, of course. Polygraph tests are uh, essentially junk science. Uh, they're not reliable, not admissible in court. Uh, so all of those caveats um, uh, obviously should, should should be said. But um, since then, uh, it's kind of become part of the defense's case to try to shift blame for the, the murders from their client, Murdoch, to uh, potentially anyone else out there. Uh, but primarily Curtis Smith and show that it's it's possible that the real killer is still out there, as they've said all along. Uh, so in response to that, recently, the state uh, uh, filed a motion asking Judge Newman to uh, try to limit uh, or, or to, to outright prohibit the uh, the mentioning of polygraph tests at all during this trial as well as to prohibit Murdoch's defense attorneys from uh, trying to blame third parties or introduce evidence of third party guilt at this trial. So those two motions, uh, which were filed at the same time, seem like a pretty transparent attempt to uh, try to try to stop Murdoch's defense attorneys from, you know, turning this trial into a circus and uh, trying to allege that the real killer is Curtis Smith or, or anyone else, uh, and, and to try to use that to create doubt within the jury um, that Murdoch is the actual killer. So uh, it, it seems like at this point, neither side really wants Curtis Smith to to play a big role at trial. Uh, we do we did learn that he was subpoenaed as a as a possible witness. We believe that it was the state that subpoenaed him. Uh, I don't believe that defense plans to uh you know to bring him onto the stand if the state doesn't but i do believe that the state is more or that the defense is more than prepared to try to impeach smith's credibility uh if if he is presented as some sort of star witness against murdoch and they obviously have a lot of material to do that i mean uh smith is a guy who is charged as you mentioned with laundering drugs for murdoch with um uh, or sorry, uh, trafficking drugs and buying drugs for Murdoch with with laundering uh, millions of dollars that Murdoch allegedly stole uh, with shooting Murdoch in the head during that bizarre Labor Day 2021 incident on the side of the road. Um, you know, he's <laughs> he, he is far from the ideal star witness. So uh, I, I don't necessarily expect him to play a huge role at this trial. But if he does, there will certainly be some fireworks. Yeah, he he. By all accounts, I mean, I think he's seen as someone who could be a real wild card on the stand, right? I mean, he could be the perfect foil to throw up there and sow reasonable doubt. And all you need is one, right, on a jury to to maybe. But then again, you don't know what else he's going to say when up there. So not, not a, a guaranteed home run for either side. And as prosecutors, you want the focus to be on Alec Murdoch, his motive, his means, um, you know, his opportunity. And um, you don't want 
it to become a circus. You don't want someone else, you know, to be introduced into, uh, you know, into the story and in, into this trial uh, who who could potentially, you know, give give the jury reason to doubt. Um, so so I don't know. I mean, it, there's a lot that we don't know about this case, a lot that we don't know about the evidence. What we do know has been colored by uh, pre-trial motions and press conferences and and leaks. So uh, everything we say here has to be caveated and, you know, <laughs> in the understanding that a lot more is going to come out at trial and we learn more details about this case every day. But I would be surprised if if anyone trots him up to the witness stand. Yeah, I, I um, wait for just a follow up to that, too, is uh, someone has asked, uh, do you have a sense that there will be significant evidence presented uh with the murders that the public has not been privy to? Do you think there's going to be any uh, real curveballs coming out here? Uh, yeah, potentially. You know, like I said, what what we know uh, has been has been dictated by by leaks, um, you know, and and also by the defense's characterization of the state's case, because, you know, since the indictment, the state has been very tight lipped. And so the defense has had uh, has basically been been driving the narrative ever since uh, mid July uh, of last year, and so they've they've gone out and said that you know uh, the blood spatter and the financial crimes, you know, that's all they have on our client. Um, you know, all this that they've been able to really characterize what the state's case is. So yeah, there's I mean, if they're if they're telling the truth, then um, there's there's probably not that much out there uh, that that we don't know about, but. Uh, it isn't necessarily in Murdoch's defense team's best interest to go out there and um, and, tout, and tout the state's case, right? So th there probably is, there probably are some things we don't know. But, um, you know, for now, I, I do think we know a good bit about the state's case in terms of, of what evidence they have and and what, what the defense's responses to those evidence, uh, those pieces of evidence are going to be. Todd, I see you're typing an answer there, but I, I did want to put you on the spot with the same question. Uh, reader asks, uh, how do you think the jury selection will go? What will the attorneys look for with the jury, especially given how high profile this case is? And that, that's a great question because it's going it to be hard to find people in that area that don't haven't heard of this case. Now, knowing what you know about the Lafitte case going in, can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Well, I was going to say, Lauren, it's a good question. I'm actually working on a story about it right now. So keep an eye out for that in the next couple of days, um, probably coming out Monday um, yeah. to go along with the start of jury selection. But yeah, I mean, I, I think basically uh, I'll say, like, first of all, I was surprised in the Lafitte case how quickly jury selection moved. Um, I mean, I think they if I remember right. They they had their panel by um, by lunchtime on the first day. Now, granted, so we weren't able to see the jury selection process. We were kicked out in a sort of awkward moment in the courtroom, um, or I was kicked out <laughs> in a moment in the courtroom. But um, we, I look back at the transcript of what happened during that process later, and part of how they were able to to see the jury so quickly is that. You know, they asked like, okay, who, who's heard of the Murdoch case? I mean, it was a more detailed question than that, but they asked that question and like half the prospective jurors stood up, it looks like. Um, and uh, oh, the way they were able to basically see the jury is that many people who had heard of the case hadn't heard of the banking aspect of it. They were like, oh, isn't that the thing with the murder, you know? Um, I was surprised. There were a lot of people who like just hadn't gotten that deep into following the case. There's one person who said, Oh yeah, I saw some headlines about that, but I had the paywall and didn't want to pay for it, so I didn't. Uh, there's another person who said, like, yeah, I watched like half a documentary 
uh, only because like my mom had it on when I got home and and I just sat and watched the last half. So it's interesting. Like one person was like, I, I'm too busy at work to really keep up, but I've heard of it. Um, so I think probably if I were to guess, um, neither side is is going to talk about their jury selection um, uh, strategy. But I think what they're going to be looking for is people who everyone's going to have heard of the case. So people who just haven't gotten that deep into it, maybe they're just like not following all the podcasts and documentaries and news coverage, um, and and people who just sort of at least have a sense of ambiguity about what happened. Obviously, if somebody goes up and says, I think he for sure did it, they're going to get struck. Um, but people who who maybe are sort of familiar with it, but not super familiar with it, I think is probably what your target's going to be. Um, but to your question about how it's going to go, they're clearly expecting it to be sort of tricky. Um, the latest I heard from the clerk of court's office is that they sent jury summonses to 900 people, which is like crazy. Um, like the Susan Smith murder case in 95, um, I was looking at some clips on this. They sent summonses to 250 people. And like, that was a huge trial at the time too. Um, for context, that's like one in 30-ish people in Carlton County. So <laughs> it's a really big pool that they're drawing. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I, I'm guessing it'll be at least a few days. Yeah, there was uh, a question too. and and. There, there have been a lot of discussion early on as to whether they would try to move this trial to another jurisdiction or um, possibly, you know, bus in jurors from another part of the state, and uh, they haven't done either, right? And there, there was a lot of concern because, again, the, the Murdochs, um, beginning in, in, was it 1920, uh, they served as the chief prosecutor for that region in the very judicial circuit that's, that's trying him now. Um, and what his, his grandfather, Buster, his portrait was hanging in the courtroom uh, during several of the proceedings and, and the judge ordered it to, to come down before the trial starts. Um, any, anyone with any insight as to, I don't think either side made a motion, right? To try to move it outside the, that area? Correct, no, nobody requested it. And uh, judges don't just change the venue on their own. That typically has to be, uh, some sort of motion from either the defense or or the state, uh, typically, you know, uh, one side or the other, to uh, either bring the trial to a completely different venue, a different county, or to bring in jurors from a different county and still hold the trial um, in Colvin County. Um, don't don't really have a lot of insight as to why neither side did that, um, but I do think that there there's still a lot we don't know about how the Murdoch name is perceived in in that neck of the woods. Uh, you know, it, it's we've heard a lot about people who, you know, love the Murdochs and would do anything for them. Uh, people who owed the Murdochs favors from, you know, uh, favors that the Murdochs had done for them. Uh, people who feared the Murdochs and, and knew that they were people you didn't want to cross. Um, but, you know, since all of this has come out, uh, since Alec Murdoch has been stuck in the jail since last October and, you know, the, the the whole family mystique has kind of come crashing down. We don't know. I'm, I'm sure the, the attorneys on each side have probably done focus groups and maybe some polling, but we don't know how the family name is perceived um, down there. Uh, and I think that's going to be a real X factor in this trial that we're, we're not really going to fully understand maybe ever, but, but certainly not until the jury verdict comes in. So um, that's, that's a long way of saying we don't know the answer to 
answer your question, but, <laughs> but, but that is what, you know, that is our understanding of it. Yeah, I think a lot of people had expected that, you know, somebody was going to try to move this somewhere or get a different jury pool and it just never happened. And like you say, that is such a big X factor because it could cut either way, right? Yeah, it could. Um, and, you know, I think that that may play a role in, in jury se selection as well. Um, you know, like Thad said, it's going to be it's going to depend on uh, people's preconceived notions, um, you know, about the Murdochs. It's going to depend on if anyone out there has possibly avoided all the publicity that that's been going on over the, over the past, you know, two years. And one thing that I, I was speaking to a, a trial lawyer the other day, and he was telling me that it's, it's kind of harder than ever to, to pick uh, in this climate, in this political atmosphere, uh, an impartial jury, because people have got their minds made up about everything. You know, they, they've, they've got greater access to information um, and, and news and analysis and opinion than, than ever before because of the internet and technology. And so it's really hard to find 12 open-minded people who have not already, whether they'll admit it or not during jury selection, have not already made up their mind about an issue or a person or a crime. So uh, again, I, I think the jury is, is by far going to be the, the greatest um, X factor in this. Yeah, not, not to mention all the people as one of the um, viewers pointed out uh, that probably knew them personally in some respect. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty tight-knit area, not a ton of people. Um, had a few questions too from people, and, and it's that same question that I guess we've all been asking for the last year and a half too, is wh where did all the money go? Uh, why did he need so much money? Thad, you spoke a little bit about the, the busted real estate deals. Um, and and in the beginning, clearly the, uh, the the indication was that he had this raging opioid habit and needed to to, to, to feed this, this drug frenzy of his, but I mean, the amount of money that was passing through, I mean, you could probably buy like a fentanyl factor factory in, you know, China or something uh, with that. So, I mean, where anyone I, outside of the, outside of the drugs and, and real estate, um, where, where did all that money go? Yeah. No, Martha, I see that question. I, I think it's, it's kind of like the million dollar question to me uh, in this case. I mean, granted, I, I'm, sort of more focused on the financial crimes at this point. Um, honestly, looking through his his bank records, like I'm not a forensic accountant or anything, but um, I, I still am not sure. Um, there's a lot of cash transactions. Um, certainly some of that, or probably a good chunk of that could be going toward drugs. Um, but I think that's a, a an unknown still. Um, I will say like the, the real estate deals do appear to be very large, um, but there's also like a sort of a dynamic there where one of his main business partners uh, died, I forget exactly when, but in the 2010s, 20-teens. Um, so I think that also shifted some of the financial responsibility for those deals. Um, but yeah, I think there's a ton of money that's unaccounted for, at least to my mind. Um, I'm hoping to get, I'm hoping we get some answers about that uh, in the next few weeks. Um, because I will say like sitting through the Lafitte trial, which took like basically three weeks, um, that was the question that just like kept being like on the tip of everyone's tongues and it just, there wasn't a clear resolution to it. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you is what I would say. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're all talking about this the other day and how, um, you know, the economy in South Carolina and 
you know, some of the areas at least that he was investing was, was kind of booming, right? I mean, real estate is going through the roof, rental prices, housing prices, and 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 how, how do you fail at real estate, I guess, uh, in, in this economy now? But it, but some of the land, right? It's it's kind of swampy. Not, yeah, not the I mean, there, there, was one, there was one deal, this is mentioned in the story. Um, it was a proposed uh, like subdivision development um, outside of Beaufort, kind of closer to Bluffton. Uh, or that way. Um, and in that case, there was a lot of opposition to it on environmental grounds, sort of developing this island. Um, and that property ended up becoming, uh, like it's now preserved, essentially, the county bought it. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't know the specific dynamics. Um, and there's there's a couple of the deals, uh, like in Berkeley County, that, um, like there was a fair amount of reporting on this Beaufort deal in the island packet at the time. Um, I have not seen so much about the the Berkeley proposal, so I, I don't know all the details of what they were trying to do there. Um, that's that's sort of an unknown that uh, is sort of on my list to to chip away at. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it's a good question. I'll throw one last one out there, and I know we're we're kind of running out of time. Uh, a couple of people have asked too. Um, Curious as to were there any indications that that Maggie or Paul uh, were, were aware of the financial problems, were aware of the the, the drug problems? Um, I know there's been suggestions through, throughout this case that she was perhaps pursuing some sort of, uh, you know, consulting about a divorce, but there's been no evidence brought forward to show that that's the case. I mean, that's been talked about since week one, right? And no one's ever come forward and said, here's the attorney, here's what she was doing or any sort of paperwork on that. That's a great question. Like you said, there have been reports, rumors, you know, People Magazine, for example, uh, wrote in, a, uh, in an, an account that Murdoch's attorneys hotly disputed that, um, that Maggie was you know, living apart from Murdoch, uh, living at the family's Edisto Beach House, and also, um, you know, was was meeting with a divorce attorney in the weeks before she was killed. Uh, since then, Murdoch's um, attorneys have said they've gone through all the texts between Alec and Maggie, and, you know, it only shows a, a loving relationship between a husband and wife, no evidence of, of marital strife or or anything like that. Uh, they said they they have no evidence or or any indication that she ever met with the defense attorney. And they, they also said that the reason that uh, Maggie had been living for the past months, almost a year at the Edisto house was because of the stigma uh, that she felt had attached to the family in the wake of the 2019 boat crash around Hampton. So, um, you know, she was living there while working on renovations to that house, they say. Um, basically as a, a way to avoid that that feeling of uncomfortability she was feeling um, in Hampton. And a big part of what Murdoch's defense team is saying in an effort to, um, you know, to try to, to, to take out or to try to dismiss the state's theory of the case is that there, there is no linkage between the financial crimes and, and all of the uh, the inquiries that were supposedly about to expose them uh, before before the murders, and Alec Murdoch deciding to kill his his wife and son. There's no um, there's no confrontation, you know, where Maggie or Paul um, 
found out about the the financial crimes and then you know brought them to to Alex's attention or threatened to expose them but they've said that that is not in the state's case again that's the defense uh characterizing the state's case um uh, but you know in that hearing uh where where that was said Creighton Waters the state prosecutor did not get up and say actually we do have that evidence you know he didn't say anything to rebuff what uh Murdoch's attorneys were saying so that is, yeah, that that link there between uh, the financial crimes and them about, about to be exposed and Murdoch actually allegedly picking up a gun and or two guns and killing his wife and son. That's something that we don't really have quite yet or we don't know if it exists. So it'll be interesting to see um, if that does exist, if that does come out at trial. And if if it doesn't, how does the state um make that that sort of logical leap and, and get the jury to follow them on that logical leap and, and convincing them that the financial crimes were were enough to uh to convince someone to, to kill two of their relatives yeah it's yeah it'll be interesting and and so i'm sure we're going to learn a whole lot more about this in the days and weeks to come um I want to thank everyone for turning in today. I uh, encourage you, again, if you want to get caught up on the case, go to uh, postingcourier.com slash Murdoch or check out our podcast, Understand Murdoch. Uh, come Monday morning, be sure to tune in early to Jocelyn because she's going to be pumping out those, those live updates that will really keep you abreast of the latest developments in the case. Um, remember also that you can sign up for any of our newsletters, which are free at postingcourier.com slash newsletter sign up. Um, and if you're a subscriber, we'd like to say thank you. If you're not a subscriber, you can sign up at postandcourier.com slash subscribe. Uh, I want to thank everyone and our panelists today. And uh, again, have a great day and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.